Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about it's not too late in regards to climate change and a few other things happening with our democracy here in America. And my guest is Frances Moore-LePay, and Frances is co-founder with her daughter, Anne LePay, of the Small Planet Institute. They're spreading an empowering understanding of democracy. The Small Planet Institute's vision is grounded in eyes-wide-open hope, the opposite of wishful thinking. Small Planet strives to further three social conditions, wide dispersion of power, transparency in public affairs, and a culture of mutual accountability, a living democracy, an evolving way of life, not only a form of government. So, hello, Frankie. Hi. <laughs> so happy to be with you right upstairs. Yeah, this is great. Small Planet Institute, has, you have your office on the second floor, and we're on the third floor of our fair city, Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and right across the square from that old university with crimson colors. <laughs> um, oh, and so with me are um, my our ORI summer interns, uh, Jesse McIsaac and Morgan Berman. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. You better say your names or your voices. Oh, that's true. This is Jesse. Thanks Thanks for having me again. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, we sound very alike on the radio, but we'll try our best. (laughs) No, you are quite distinguished already. (laughs) Thank you for uh, hosting three previous radio episodes. So if you haven't heard these guys live, you can still hear them recorded live (laughs) um, just in the, the past three episodes. And thanks for managing the office and mostly for campaigning for cleaning waters, cleaner waters. You guys have been um, across the state, just got back from the Martha's Vineyard, mm-hmm. and we'll do some program about that later on. But yeah. you've been really fighting the good fight on reducing nitrogen pollution um, at farmers' markets with sponges and, and turkey basters mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. So uh, for that, you've got to go to other episodes. But uh, I'm really excited, Frankie, that you've, We've been working to, in the same building for some time, but we just kind of like, we had great conversations in the hallway, but we I never know. quite thought, sit down together. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, right. So I was so excited you moved in here because um, when I was in college, your book, A Diet for a Small Planet, was um, my saving grace because I was at Hampshire College and they were all vegetarians saying, you, you can't eat meat. And I said, oh, yeah, I believe in a diet for a small planet, that there's a role for in this world for goats and sheep and, and some of these, you know, they can argue about cows, but I love cows and cattle too. You know, we got room for all of them. Um, but um, so it's been a while. It has. It's been quite a journey. And it will be 50 years, just two more years since I was sitting there at the UC Berkeley Agricultural Library with my dad's slide rule, which very few people know what a slide rule is now, and putting two and two together, and it changed my life because I realized that actually human beings were creating scarcity out of plenty, that we can't blame nature. Indeed, we can't blame nature. It is a human-made phenomenon, hunger in the world, and it's still true today. As hunger increases, our production has gone way up. 
Yeah, it's, it's a while because we're producing the food, but absolutely. we still have hunger stuff. And yeah. so and people are saying about exploding population, they can't feed them. Yeah, but, you no, know, that's not true. When I wrote Diet for Small Planet, it was right in the era that Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, had just exploded. And everybody was thinking, yeah. oh, my gosh. Oh, my God, and, no children, yeah. And, right, and there was a book by the Paddock Brothers called Famine 1975 telling yeah. us that right around the corner was mass starvation. So it was a big wake-up. I was 26 when I started the research, and the book came out when I was 27. And it absolutely changed my life forever. And this idea that we see the world through this lens of lack, that there's not enough of anything, and we put ourselves in this position where we end up actually creating the scarcity that we say we fear. And I'm still working on it. <laughs> and so um, I hope you come out with a 50th edition. We are. We are. In two years, uh, I'm going to write a new introduction, and I hope my daughter Anna will. She volunteered to write an epilogue about what it was like to grow up in the home of uh, for small planet. Well, and she's still fighting the food fight. She's quite a yeah. powerhouse in food movement. She's not going to hesitate to write that epilogue. I'm going to offer to help with that one. But I she know. started she editing me when she was 16. So <laughs> <laughs> she's a great writer. And then, um, while you've been here, you've come out with this your 19th book, Indeed. Daring Democracy. And uh, briefly... Tell me a little about that, because I want to get to your new project of It's Not Too Late. Well, Daring Democracy is a book, another life changer, because it began on a march from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. for democracy reforms. And I had just decided that I had written my final hunger book. It's called World Hunger Ten Minutes. And I said, okay, Frankie, you've been saying that hunger is not caused by scarcity of food, but by a scarcity of democracy. So what the heck does that mean? You better get out there and fight for democracy more directly than you ever have in your life. So I signed up for this march thinking that I wasn't sure I could walk 10 miles, and I ended up walking over 100 and sitting it on the Capitol steps in perhaps the largest sitting ever on the Capitol steps in April of 2016. And it was totally life-changing. For one, I mean, many levels, but... The biggest change was is I realized I was part of a movement. Yes. I was not alone. And that's what most, most of us have to feel, to believe that we can get up in the morning and actually do something. If it, we think we're just an isolated voice, it's very hard to keep our energy going. So it was, it was that, ah, it was just life-changing. I told Adam Eichen, who became my co-author with Dairy Democracy, I said, Adam, this is the happiest day of my life. And there's this picture of me with my hand in the air. I was speaking at this <laughs> big rally, and my son is the one who noticed, Mom, you have a pen in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> I think that means something. I was it. But it really was so thrilling. And um, so that then connected me with Adam Eichen, 49 years my junior, and we said, okay, we've got to write the book that will tell the story of this movement that is changing our lives. And we did it. You did. And we agreed you on every... You youth, you really got... Every, yeah. We agreed on every word in that book and wrote it in no time because we had to really get it out. And it's been so satisfying, the response to it, because the first, you know, there's just a couple of short chapters that tell us how we got here. And we emphasize very much the power of ideas. 
that we, there was a campaign here uh, beginning in the 1970s to really convince people that we had to give over our fate to this quote-unquote free market. Mm -hmm. And that, um, so, so we bought into that and what happened that power became ever more concentrated to the point that uh, we now, many of us feel we really don't have a democracy that's listening and answering to citizens, no. but to money, interest. And most Americans agree with that. Left and right, most Americans agree that... Uh, well, what's great about your book is that you spell it out. Yep. Here's the example, you know, <clears throat> chapter and verse mm-hmm. of what they are doing. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, okay, that one is clearly, you know, and then here's another one and another one. Yeah. So it, no, we're so awesome. used to sound bites that people have just been overwhelmed with these, you know, they're bad, they're bad, but no. It's, it was what? a very deliberate strategy. Yeah. It's not about bad people. That doesn't help No. It was a very deliberate strategy by people who were terrified. We start with this 1971 memo by Lewis Powell, who became a Supreme Court justice. And the man was terrified. <laughs> and this memo he wrote, which spells out, you know, that, that oh, my gosh, you know, the free market is in, is in trouble. The only person that they singled out as a huge threat was Ralph Nader. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Ralph Nader, he just had saved us from exploding cars at that point. Right. He was corporate enemy with. number yeah. one because he was challenging corporate power. That's right. Took on corporate America. Yeah. And, and so, sadly, they then gained so much power that the lobbyists, corporate lobbyists, Adam and I have it in the book, I think there was like a 12-fold increase. I have to go back to my yeah, book. Huge increase in lobbyists. A huge, Just because you know, Ralph Nader was well, the well, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and then they infuse this message of the market is the only way, and uh, and just a market without rules that keep it fair and keep it competitive. No, no, no. That that stands in the way. We have to have this unfettered market, which then becomes so concentrated that today, in twelve industries, there are just a tiny number of corporations who control over half the market. Half the market. Yeah, from rental cars to airplanes, right. air, 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 airlines, etc. So we have we have to understand that this is a radical shift. And I wrote a blog, if any of our listeners are interested, because it captures yes. the impact. It's called A Tale of Two Generations. Um, and um, it's this alarming, uh, it's just in two bar graphs where you see uh, from the 40s to the 70s, how wealth was fairly widely distributed, and then from the 80s to today, where it's all rushing to the top. Mm-hmm. And so this is not inevitable, folks. That's, that's what we, that's we right. really want to get this across, that this has come out of a set of ideas that many people bought into, and that that then translated into power, concentrated in government, and in the economy. It is not inevitable, and therefore it can be reversed because in my lifetime, you see, I've spanned both. My, it was my, my generation and then my children's generation who were born in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I, I lived in these two worlds. That's right. So the value of that is you know this doesn't have to be. No. And I think now what's so exciting to me is that young people <laughs> like you all are really saying, no, no, this is not the future. We don't have a future if mm-hmm. we continue to, to violate everything we know about concentrated power and secrecy mm-hmm. and blaming disclaiming culture. So that's where I am. I'm really delighted with the intergenerational aspect of this democracy. Well, we're delighted and grateful for your book, Daring Democracy. Uh, it says here on the cover, Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection with the America We Want. Yes. And we're going to spend the rest of the program talking about that America we want. Yes. But um, 
that book isn't out yet, and this one is. So well, this is about a piece of the American. I mean, this is yeah, and I'm recommending yeah. it because uh, as a way for understanding the politics yeah. or how to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. You know, all the organizing we're doing now around climate change, uh, the, those people doing that can learn from this book. Yeah, and, and, and I want to get across that it's, a, yeah. it's a short book. Yeah, it's a quick read, and it's, it's full very of readable. stories. Exactly, and. So what we want to emphasize in it is that Adam and I call it a movement of movements because what's so beautiful now, unlike earlier times, I think this is unique, where people in a range of issues, whether it's oceans or whether it's healthcare, a range of issues say we can't do, we can't succeed without democracy. And so they're saying, yes, I'm not going to give up my issue passion and one of my friends in the democracy movement said, Frankie, you know you can love two children at once. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, i got two kids. Yeah. i got that. So I can, I can love my food movement work, yes. and, and I can make a commitment to the democracy movement. And so that's really what's happening now. And so out of this, this breakthrough, in, the 2000, in 2013, Issue organization leaders came together from Sierra Club to unions, etc., and they said we need to one organization that embodies this movement of movement. It's called the Democracy Initiative, and it now represents about seventy organizations that they represent about forty million Americans. And so, this idea that that we can come together around democracy, no matter what our issue is, really embodied. And um, so, this book we try to capture that movement of movements. It was so necessary because, you. you know, in our youth, there was the environmental movement right. and the Vietnam movement. <laughs> right. And yeah. we merged those because, yeah. you know, that was worth, you didn't have a choice, you know. Right. It's like you got to deal with the problems in your right. face. Right. And civil rights. But, right. um, and, and so there was kind of a bifurcation of people getting into their own little yeah. corners. And, and now, in many efforts, we see, you know, the, the climate change movement overlapping now with civil rights because they understand right. that it all comes down to democracy. Right. And, and if you get democracy to work, then right. everyone's interests are properly addressed. And they can't be forced from above, as you were saying, this power structure right. of putting this right. framework on us that is not yeah, democratic. Yeah, it, it doesn't align with human nature because we agreement. know we do not do well. We've yeah. seen that over and over. Will we ever learn from the Holocaust, for example? We don't do well when power is concentrated. And it's up to us to ensure that it's fluid and open and that we are part of it. And uh, so I, I, I think in my youth, I don't think, I thought, you know, once I said, uh, oh, I thought I was born into a democracy. Nobody told me I had to create one. That's right. <laughs> and I That's think what we all believe. Yeah. We believe that, that that was taken care of and that we can just go into our niche, right? And now it's a different era. We can see what has happened with that assumption. So it's been a very exciting time to be alive, and I'm so glad. Well, um, thank you for your championing and oh, clarifying just, it. It because, makes me happy. You know, our eyes have been opened. So yeah. You know, the haves have been telling us you've got it all, and the have not. You know, we open our eyes and realize that they're but for the grace of God to us. And, and this is all. And I don't yeah. know about you, Rob, but I tell young people that when I was growing up, I, I never saw one homeless person. Mm. And I did not. I lived in a working class neighborhood. I never saw one. And I can still remember the first homeless person I saw. Uh, it was in the 1980s, as soon as Reagan started, yeah. policy started. So I think it's really important that mm-hmm. people, again, know it does not have to be this way. So this, yeah. 
important. Yeah. Um, and it leads into your, your current work, which is that, um, you know, that, well, you're working on, you've got a current project, mm-hmm. um, which is um, going to culminate in a book called It's Not Too Late. Right. <laughs> and you're co-writing that with Bob Massey, um, who we know very well here in Massachusetts because of all the things he's been doing, from series and so forth. Yeah, and most um, recently running for governor. Yes. I went door-to-door for Bob. Yeah, boy, <laughs> yeah. And, and that was great because it got the message Because he's a climate right. activist among many of his... He totally is a climate yeah. and environmental activist yeah. overall. Um, I think he worked for series and so Oh, other, yeah, he was key. He was key yeah. there and stuff. And uh, Global Reporting Initiative. There it is, Corporations yeah. reporting on their environmental impacts. And like, really like me, he lives in Somerville, so I mean, he's okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> but I can talk to you. I can't reach you, and it's okay, too. Um, so how did you come to uh, It's Not Too Late, or the idea of this book or something? Well, uh, after Daring Democracy came out, you know, I continued to be public speaking and trying to really respond to the ox I felt around climate change that I felt personally I was feeling that people were just... It's so overwhelmed because you're already experiencing it, certainly with the heat we've had here and, and the reading about terrible droughts already and the forest fires in, in California. <laughs> you know, even my daughter and her family in the Bay Area, they had to go south mm-hmm. just to be able to breathe. You know, it's already affecting all of us. So I wanted um, to write and to work on solutions. Yeah. Uh, I really believe that Failure of hope, that is despair, is our very greatest enemy. It's not corporate power. (laughs) It's not fossil fuel industry. Our biggest, biggest enemy is our own despair. If we despair, it's all over. No. And when I say it's not too late, of course, I don't mean that it's not too late for many many species. Right. And it's not too late to avoid suffering. But I believe that it's not too late to ensure that life on Earth continues and that my granddaughters' lives and their children will be able to have the skills of democracy to come together and deal with the world that they face. So I, I, I think of this democracy emphasis and this arts of democracy, I call it, and learning to create structures in which we all have a voice. That's not just to prevent a problem, but it's also to enable us yes. to deal with the problems that we know will be there. So. When I when I talk about it's not too late, I'm not naive enough to think that no. it's not too late to avoid a great pain. But I do believe we still have time to save life on Earth. And, you know, particularly being someone who gets so much of my life on the Earth itself through food and force, I, I see that weaving together because, of course, as you know, as we all know that changing our Farming and uh, use of our forest is key to uh, addressing yes. climate change. So it, I guess I came to this in a way to weave all the pieces of my life together. That's great. You brought in agriculture, which is what we started with, the small planet. Absolutely. And it sounds to me like you're saying it's not too late to reclaim the democracy. Right. The right. whole democratic process right. that we think is our nation. Right. And, and so... Yeah, we have to take 
take heart. I mean, even the worst dictators in the world, I think of Germany, you know, now in many ways it's a paragon of democracy. I mean, they don't have the same kind of no, money. They, have kind they, of democracy. Have, yeah. they, they don't have the same kind of money dominated democracy we do. And yet, when I was a child, they had the most brutal dictator That's right. bar that we could ever imagine. And so uh, we, we have to keep believing that uh, we can come through this dark time. Yes. Well, this is a great notes. We're going to uh, take a short break, and then we're going to delve into the three parts of your uh, project book. Okay. Uh, after this break. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. We're talking with Francis Moore LePay, and she is the co-founder of the Small Planet Institute. And if that name and those words sound familiar, you're right. Francis Moore LePay wrote The Diet for a Small Planet, 
back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's the same Frankie. She's still struggling, <laughs> speaking truth to power. Um, how can people learn more about your work? Or you got a website or something? Yes, it's very easy to remember. Smallplanet.org. <laughs> Smallplanet.org. And I, I blog regularly, and I would love to be in touch with you. And we have an e-list so that you could get notified of my blogs and all the other great stuff that we're doing. It's still going on. and It is. So we're talking about your new project um, with Bob Massey, mm-hmm. which is uh, putting together uh, a three-part book, I guess, called It's Not Too Late. And, um, and I'm going to ha- pass it over to Jesse to uh, engage in conversation about the first triad of those three sessions. Yes, well, I first want to say thank you again for sitting down with us. This has been such an enriching conversation. Um, So from our talks, I understand that there are kind of three sections of your new upcoming book, and I would like to ask a couple questions about the first part. So I know we briefly touched upon this, but as, you know, with increasing extreme weather events and, as you mentioned, the horrible heat waves we've been having, how is it not too late to have hope in the face of climate change. Well, what I mean by that is it's certainly not that we can avoid the pain that people are suffering, and the, especially in areas of the world, in Africa and India now, is such uh, drought, and then, of course, the fires, etc. So it is more what I mean by that. It is not too late to make a huge difference for life on Earth. And our, I think our nature as human beings is that we evolved to be this dominant species mm-hmm. because we are problem solvers. <laughs> we are not couch potatoes by nature, or we wouldn't have made it to the efficacy. Mm-hmm. So taking that energy to be, to matter, to have power, meaning, and connection, that's my trilogy mm-hmm. about what humans need to thrive in the essence of dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do well when we feel powerless. And so what I mean is that uh, there are ways now that we can see that people are stepping up to make a real difference to avoid the worst mm-hmm. um, because we still have time to avoid all-out collapse. And so um, my whole MO in, in writing is to tell what I call stories of possibility. Mm-hmm. I don't call myself an optimist. I call myself <laughs> a possibilist. And what I mean by that is I think most humans don't need to have high probability even, or certain or certainty, we need to have a believe that there's a chance that we can make a difference, that our acts matter. Mm-hmm. And I think there is that's what I mean by it's not too late. That there is still a strong chance that if we act together now and take risks now to change our systems in ways we already know how to do, that uh, we can preserve life on Earth. It will Mm-hmm. It, it will continue and revive because, of course, after we bring uh, carbon under control, we still have to remove more, you yeah. know, to to really thrive. But that's sort of the theme mm-hmm. of, of my life now. Yeah. And um, so I love to tell I, – could I just tell you one example Absolutely. of how it's not possible to know what's possible? Because <laughs> I grew up in Texas, if one can grow up in Texas, um, I, and – I grew up in this very conservative, very narrow-minded community. And not too many years ago, I learned that if Texas were a state, excuse me, if Texas were a country, 
would be the sixth largest wind producer in the world. Wow. And I got very... Wind curious. power. Wind power. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, of course, it's the biggest oil producer in the country, but it's also the biggest wind producer. Mm-hmm. And this is because George Bush, when he was governor, and I, wanted, I don't know enough to understand how this happened, but accepted this renewable energy standard, portfolio standard that required uh, uh, a level of wind energy, mm-hmm. and then the utilities brought together regular citizens to deliberate mm-hmm. over what kind of choices they mix they wanted in energy sources. And now um, it's, it's amazing that uh, Texas is now the leader in wow. wind energy. Isn't that phenomenal? I have no idea. That's really amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's not too of, late for Texas. It's not <laughs> too late for Texas. To get its wind energy out. The wind energy. And, and so now I, I, I was just reading that uh, there are just a handful of states um, that if we had the national grid, we would need to distribute it, that just this, you know, four states could supply, um, could power our entire electric wow. grid for the country. Wow. So it's, it's, the answers are there. Mm-hmm. It's a question of do we step up as citizens mm-hmm. to ensure the rules are fair, and this is where democracy comes yes. in, mm-hmm. daring democracy, because it's not just electing the right people, for people who really are willing to have guts to stand up to, mm-hmm. to, and, to and to enact, you know, just saying climate policies. Mm-hmm. But it's also changing the rules uh, that have so weakened uh, this one person, one vote. Yeah. Premise, yeah. Uh, gerrymandering, for, for mm-hmm. example. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, increasing voter turnout, which, you know, we have probably the lowest in all the Western yeah. world. Yeah. And yet we know that things like automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. uh, now they're in just five years, 15 states have passed automatic voter registration, wow. which is one reform that definitely increases um, registration, mm-hmm. but also turnout. So there, there are just so many things mm-hmm. that um, we need to do to enable real democracy yeah. in order to address climate change. But back, but back to your um, to your question. So I, what I do is I look for these stories, mm-hmm. of, even in this red state of Texas with not exactly the most transparent government. <laughs> and so in many ways, it, 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 but even there, that this could happen is, is phenomenal. Yeah. This kind of goes to show that such a pressing issue as climate change must be a bipartisan, intergenerational project for democracy that we can use to fight for. I think it can be. I think it can be. And that means, you know, really reaching out to people and helping. I, I, think, I think that many people block it out because they feel that there is no answer and there's nothing they can do. So I think the more that we can tell uh, these stories. One of the, another one that just struck me yeah. um, was, I didn't, you know, I was looking at um, LEED certified cities mm-hmm. <laughs> and I expected you know, Washington, someplace in Washington, Oregon, or California. But actually, Washington, D.C. Oh. Is, is the prize winner in effect. Really? It's the leading, leading in, um, because of its public transportation, biking, yeah. and many other things. But it, it, it has the most rooftop planting, you know, mm. rooftop garden. Oh, interesting. Green, so I got the highest Yeah. Yeah. So now I want to fly to Reagan. I usually... Yeah. <laughs> I hate to fly to Reagan, but uh, look down and see if I can see yeah. the, the rooftop. 
but oh, yeah. I'm um, I'm from Washington D.C. and I study climate change and I had no idea that, that yeah oh, that yeah. D.C. was good. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. And they have I'm a green pride now, <laughs> and they they uh, you know use that to fund uh, environmental mm-hmm. initiatives, and it's paid for uh, by fines on people who aren't you know on, on I don't know partners to get no some kind of fines related to in, to the environment. Oh, so I wish great. I knew more about it, but. Yeah. It's, they've taken leadership in the green bank field as well. That's amazing. So um, I, I just, when I find these things that I would never accept yeah. it, it really reinforces that idea if it's not possible, that it's not possible to know it's possible. Mm-hmm. But I find that thought so soon because it means I can really go for my highest wish. Yes. Because I don't know, you know? Well, and your highest wish is, a, is an interactive, engaged democracy. Exactly. And when we let people express themselves, Lo and behold, Texas has got good of this, and DC's got good of that. So instead of thinking globally, we really need to listen locally and let those local voices come up because um, Mm -hmm. democracy is automatically going to spotlight the good things, you know. So if you have a state government, it's going to figure out which towns, those towns will come up, and then different states Mm -hmm. tell each other Mm -hmm. and stuff. So the the more we can get democracy working, absolutely. one of the other pieces of the puzzle, which I'm sure you know, is that we we in the U.S. contribute four times more uh, carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions than our our share of the population. Right? Mm-hmm. So, but I, I love to even flip that yeah. around and say, well, since we are such huge contributors, that we can have more of an impact. Mm-hmm. Our oh, if we yeah. cut by that's right, you know, a quarter. We're still doing a lot more than yeah. a tiny country. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of ironic that, you know, that being an outlier in the bad way, it means that our actions can have even more greater impact. impact. So it comes back to what you were saying about population. We're all saying about that. And yeah. yet, what you're referring to is that America is like 4 or 5% of the world population. Right. And we're making 20% of the carbon footprint. Right. So it doesn't matter how many people in other countries it's not a number. It's not a people number. It's right. a it's a consumption pollution number, and we have just got to clean up our act. Mm-hmm. And, and what's exciting, as you say, with hope, is that these. I mean, you think of Texas as being the greatest consumption place around, because they've got supersized cars that can fit ear horns on the front, you know, gas uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, water coolers on and stuff on their cars, and all the gasoline. And yet there they are with the most wind. Yeah. So yeah, um, it's just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forgot where I was going with that, but yeah. um, it, yeah. it, it's uh, remarkable. So I think there is a lot of common ground on this Absolutely. if we don't make people feel like we're pointing fingers. No, and people um, are discovering things on their own, and right. as you do, you elevate stories and people, mm-hmm. and that's what interests people is the nitty-gritty. Like, right. Oh, yeah, right, right. I can relate to that. Exactly. And the other reframe that I think is so important for Americans, because, you know, when they came out with the Green New Deal vision, mm-hmm. uh, that immediately people started saying, oh, we can't pay for businesses yeah. and break the bank. And right. But first of all, uh, there's so many sources of, of revenue for this. I'll go to that. But the other thing, we've got to stop t- thinking of it as spending. It mm-hmm. is an investment. Yeah. Yeah. It is an investment. And so it's not like, oh, if we don't spend now, then we won't have to spend later. If we don't spend now, we'll have to spend vastly more mm-hmm. later. So if we always use the term investment, we are, and some of these investments have immediate benefit in terms of lowering pollution, That's which right. then uh, 
uh, saves us money in healthcare. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think that reframe is absolutely critical. You're absolutely right. Because it's, it's, you know, the Green New Deal is simply an agreement to try to do something about the environment. Exactly. And when the Republican Senate said, we don't like this, the Democrats said, well, what's, is climate change a problem? And they all said, yes. Mm-hmm. And they said, what are you doing about it? And they couldn't answer that. <laughs> so it's, and that's what the mm-hmm. new Green Deal is, agreeing to do something about right, it. Exactly. And that's what we're, we're pushing a petition, that is to get Congress to acknowledge that climate change is an emergency. Yes, yeah. And we can get acting on it. And one of the things, and so every House committee is trying to come up with bills mm-hmm. to address it. Something as simple, as, and they're all bipartisan, like, you know, creating battery storage for utilities. So they don't have to be burning that exactly. for peak stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone get behind that. And as you said, that's being smarter. And an it's, not, it's, not, it's an investment, exactly. Yeah. But it ends up saving you money. And yeah. so all the corporations, except for fossil fuel, are, are into climate change actions because they found when they reduce their carbon footprints, their cost goes down and employment goes up. People want people when Frito Lay improved their trucks by twenty percent efficiency. Everybody wanted to go to work with for Frito Lay because they had cool trucks to drive back to elementary school and look cool <laughs> as a parent. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. It. So um, um, I think we're going to take a quick break, and then we only got one third of the way. But this is the important stuff, and so we're going to come back, and Morgan's going to ask you about the uh, what the economic side of this movement. We'll be right back. Local stewardship with global support. The Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco stewards and ORI partners connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Take 
are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about it's not too late for strengthening democracy is what it comes down to. <laughs> and and um, my guest is Francis Morlapay, and you can read more about Frankie's work at www.smallplanet.org. You can't exactly follow along because we're really going places with this. And... Um, and we were talking about your new book that you're working with Bob Massey on. It's going to be called It's Not Too Late. And it's got three parts. And uh, Morgan Berman is going to take it away from here. And we're going to move on to the economics side. Thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, so we've been talking a little bit with you, Frankie, about your work with democracy and promoting it and sort of igniting a movement of democracy among young people and people already involved. Um, Something really interesting about that is that we can't really talk about solutions without talking about how to pay for them. Um, and so to that end, I'm wondering about um, your ideas of democratizing the economy and sort of what that's going to look like in your new book and in your research. Well, first of all, um, we have to drop this useless debate of capitalism versus socialism. And our vision, I believe, uh, is pretty simple to describe, and that is an economy that has a market that is really uh, responsible to values that we as citizens put in place and enforce, and that there's no such thing as a market without rules. Uh, Right now, we have one rule. What brings highest return to existing wealth? And so it's just a cruise, a cruise, a cruise to bring people. And so you have 0.1% of the population that controls as much wealth as the bottom 90%. It's unbelievable, yeah. almost unbelievable, but it's true. So um, what does a democratic economy look like that could enable us to uh, address um, climate change, <laughs> among many, many other things? And um, so um, a democratic market means to me that um, the rules are set by democratic government to keep competition happening, you know, that the whole premise of the free market is that it works because there's competition. And yet, um, we have, our, our economy is driven into this greater and greater monopoly power. So we have to just drop uh, the useless debate between capitalism and socialism and really talk about what is the democratic economy. And so I've been very inspired by a number of movements. One has to do with the power within the firm itself, the cooperative form of, of, of working together. And there are now 64,000 cooperative businesses in the United States. Oh. And one of the largest dairy, uh, dairy co- companies in the country is, is a cooperative uh, that was founded in the 80s, Organic Valley, with over... Uh, over a thousand farmers and just an amazing uh, triumph. Um, and so this idea that people can have a voice in the workplace, that's what cooperatives are about. Mm-hmm. And a huge, on, on terms of energy, a huge portion, uh, I think it's something like 
40% of our land mass. Uh, people live in areas where they can buy electricity from cooperatives, and those cooperatives are much more interested in, um, in renewable energy uh, than the classic um, uh, investor, private investor-owned businesses. So there is this link then between dispersion of power in our economy through such forms as cooperative, as well as there are now a couple thousand um, big corporations, corporations that are moving toward more democratic accountability by saying, mm-hmm. look, um, we go on record is not just about being high to return to existing wealth, right. but we are also committed to our community and to our employees. And that just began, you know, just within the last 20 years. Yeah. I don't know exactly when, but already several thousand companies that have signed up for that. So that's the beginning of introducing this idea that a market works when we set the values boundaries so that it the, the decision making is accountable to the, not just to wealth. Right. Does that help yeah, explain it? It's incredibly interesting to think about it as sort of accountability from within, and that's one of your principles of democracy. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, this version of power and then this mutual accountability that's not just to one group. Right. Um, And so to the people who would say that doing cooperatives and, you know, stuff that's definitely, it's like alternative forms of economies that are not currently the popular mainstream thing in the U.S., people who say that those aren't less profitable, um, which I don't think I agree with because long-term, you know, things end up evening out in a way that's beneficial to everyone in society, I think, is what you're arguing. Um, I'm wondering, how do we sort of reconcile that debate within the United States? Well, we have a long tradition of believing in that monopoly is bad and go back to Teddy Roosevelt and the trust busting. And so it partly is reclaiming this idea that government... You know, for a long time, we bought this idea, government bad, government bad, market good. <laughs> and uh, yet we have this long tradition of understanding, wait, the government is our voice protecting us through insisting on antitrust mm-hmm. and insisting that corporate back to, you know, part of a democratic economy is corporations, all business paying their fair share. Yeah. And yet now, uh, a corporation 30, 40 years ago, they contributed about a third of revenue tax revenue, and now it's down below 10%, I believe. Yeah. And um, so that, that just, then of course, you've read like Amazon paying no taxes, yeah. <laughs> and there are now 60 Fortune 500 country, uh, companies that zero, zero wow. in taxes. Wow. So, so basic fairness, basic distribution of power means that we have to step up and say, that is unacceptable. That is undemocratic. That is, it's not just wrong to your workers it's wrong for our democracy, mm-hmm. whether, you know, we are employed by Amazon or not, um, that we are all affected by that level of, of irresponsibility. Right. So, you know, all the way from, you know, the corporate contributions to tax revenues and uh, to, you know, the, the humble co-op. I just want to mention one story about a cooperative. Yeah, uh, 30 years ago, maybe, I interviewed women who just come off welfare in the Bronx, and we're starting their own home health care company. Yeah. And guess what? I just met the new director there now, and it's the largest worker co-op in America. Wow. 2,000 employees, and that's they amazing. set the industry standard in terms of quality of care. Wow, that's incredible. And they do this magnificent training, and other, other companies come in and see how they do it. 
Isn't that a beautiful yeah, thing? Like, <laughs> this is the economy of scale you're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. It's not that bigger corporations are more profitable. It's only because they're big. And when cooperatives get That's large, right. you know, organic valley milk costs less than other milks because... Uh, they succeeded. Because they <laughs> yeah. cooperated and put together. So that's a wonderful story. Yeah, I just am so moved by that. So yeah. uh, I, I think it's elevating this idea that the principles of account- mutual accountability are not just uh, political ideas. They, yeah. Of course, they have to apply in economic life. Um, and I, you know, I, there is no perfect model of where this is working in the world, but we do know, we do know that America is totally out of step in terms of the rest of Western industrial countries in terms of just workers' rights to Mm -hmm. vacation time. We work vastly more hours in a year than people in Western Europe and, 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 you know, things like maternal leave, paternal leave, those, those are all part of our economy, but they're also part of our democracy of human dignity and that's another um, concept that I want to put down as foundational to my vision of everything about democracy and living democracy and addressing climate change is the concept of dignity and I think this is what our founders were getting at when they talked of all of us being created equal even though they were slaveholders but they, they, they knew that they were betraying that value, but I think what they were getting at, we are equal in dignity. Mm-hmm. And that means that we, to maintain that sense of dignity, we have to feel that we count, that we have a voice, not just on once on election day, but every day mm-hmm. in some form in our families and in our workplaces. And so this is, there's nothing radical about this. This has been shown, I think, uh, radical in the sense of new, mm-hmm. that this is really what human beings are. And while there is no perfect model, there's so many lessons that we can learn from the people like the women in the Bronx who created this company uh, where they had dignity. And the other thing about it, it just works because there's much lower turnover. Of course, when you're treated well, you own the company, they have a small fraction of the annual turnover that their competitors do, which saves them so they have a lot of money because there's nothing more costly than workers going out the door regularly, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just so many, um, so much developing here that we can learn from. And uh, so, again, I, I'm not saying there is, I can point you to a perfect model, but mm-hmm. I do know that whether it's um, electric cooperatives that now are serving so much of the company mm-hmm. or the country or the farmers cooperatives or the home health care workers, that this this is big. One out of every ten people in the world is employed in a co- in a corner. It's just seeds of hope. Yes, yeah, yes. seeds of hope. And I was surprised, but by the by co-op up in in Berkeley, that the the the, the, first, the person hired last week is paid the same amount as the most senior person. Wow. So you don't have this hierarchy starting in co-ops that you know um, that's just. But we're all, we've run out of time. You know, this has been fabulous. Yeah. You're going to have to come back and talk some more about your other to. work. I'd love to. But uh, in the last couple of minutes, um, help us with some takeaways. Of, um, well, on, this, can, on this note yeah. about economic democracy, I just want to underscore that when interviewers, pollsters ask Americans what was a fair, what was a fair uh, gap between rich and poor, you know, they're uh, on uh, 
what they came up with is the is the differential that exists in the Nordic countries. <laughs> they didn't know that, no. but it's much smaller than ours. Yes. And uh, so I think, again, uh, there is much more sentiment in this direction than meets the eye, and I find that incredibly helpful. Yeah. And so any ways that we can learn better to talk about these ideas, and that for me, I hate to say it, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, but I think just dropping the... Well, I guess it's Bernie who's using that term. I just think that term socialism is so confusing. That, totally is. That it's, why, why, why bother? It, it is. Having a postal confused. service is socialism. Right. Well, we don't want to give it up, you know. I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, having yeah. public transportation is socialism, but we need those things. Yeah. And, so, and, uh, but thank you. Democracy is yeah. And so I urge people to visit your website. Uh, thank you. www. Um, what is it? Uh, Smallplanet.org. Small mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, thank you for your work about, you know, in the face of all this despair, these terrible things going on, um, you, you know, it's like, well, I'm a sailor, so when I see the stormy weather coming over on the horizon, you know, I don't refer to scientists tell us that that's going to destroy the boat, you know, and give up. But, you know, you... You, you let go this you shorten sales and you make sure you got a bailer and do these things because in the end we have to play the hand that dealt us, you know. Absolutely. There's no point in complaining about the unfairness of this or that. It's how can we get up again when we're not right, down? Right. And I, I maybe my last thing I'd like to add is Please. I often say the only choice we don't have is whether to change the world. Because everything we do and don't do is changing the world around. Right. Yeah. So there it is. We have a choice. Are we going to change for the good or just go along? And believe me, the thrilling life, the rewarding life is taking those risks. Right. And, and finding buddies who are braver than you are because we're social animals. So mm-hmm. find people who are more of a risk taker <laughs> and cuddle up with them and you'll become more brave. And, yeah. And notice the camaraderie there. Everybody's yeah, dealing with it in their we own ways. That. And just because they're not on your issues, right. they're dealing with stuff. And right. So I, so find find yeah. buddies who want to be courageous in this moment. Don't stand alone. Yeah. Frankie Lipmore LePay, thank you My for pleasure. telling us about the work of the small planet. And Morgan Berman and uh, Jesse <laughs> McIsaac, our ORI interns, thank you for holding it all together. <laughs> and that's it for this week's. Uh, Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening, and please tune in next week. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.